All right, that's enough of those details. Uh, I want to transition. Uh, today we have the privilege of starting the book of Colossians. Uh, this is an incredible book, and I'm excited for us to, to dive deep into it here over the next couple months. Uh, Rich is actually going to be preaching this morning, and it's his 34th birthday. So happy birthday, Rich. We're, we're going to sing to you. Ready? No, we're not. Just kidding. Um, but yeah, thanks for bringing the word, Rich. And uh, I'm actually going to read from Colossians chapter 1. So if you have your Bible, feel free to open up to Colossians 1. If, uh, if you're reading from a uh, chair Bible in front of you, we're going to be on page 983. So we're going to be in Colossians 1, verses 1 through 14. And if you, will, if you will, would you show reverence to God's word and stand as I read? Okay, Colossians chapter 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints. Of this, you heard before the word of the truth the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power, according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. This is the word of the Lord. Would you all pray with me? Father, it is a joy and a privilege to stand up here and be able to look deeply into your word. And I do ask that you would show up here, that your spill it would fill us to give us an understanding, insight, both into this text and into the God that has given us this text. I pray that uh, our eyes would be open to see you, to understand the beauty of the gospel in Jesus and I pray that uh, through our time together, you would just stir our affections towards you, that you would, you would allow us to, to leave here transformed and continuing, continuing to be transformed by the gospel that saves us. So I pray for your uh, strength even now, guide my words and my thoughts through this time, and may your name be lifted up. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. You guys can have a seat. Well, it is my birthday, and it is my joy and privilege to be able to preach from and kick off this sermon series through one of what is arguably my favorite book in the Bible. I love the book of Colossians. Colossians lifts, lifts up the person of Jesus for us in, 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 a, in a unique way uh, from all of uh, the other uh, New Testament writings, and it just gives us this, this picture to, to look at Christ, to behold Christ in all that He is. And we mention this a lot but uh, if, you, if you're new here, our, our common way of approaching preaching is to, is to walk through books of the Bible like this. We just finished the Gospel of John, and now we're, we're going to go and move on into the, the book of Colossians and walk through this book consecutively. Over the summer, summer we'll probably spend some time uh, in the wisdom literature of, of the Psalms and Proverbs, and then in the fall, hopefully jump into at least part of the book of Genesis. And we do that because it kind of keeps us on track. It allows us to, to, to most effectively hear from Scripture not just preach what we want to, want to get up here and talk about, but it, it keeps us focused on God's Word and allowing that to, to guide us. 
And so just as a way of encouragement, if you guys ever leave here and, 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 and go someplace else, find a different church, I, I would just encourage you, find a place that walks through Scripture expositionally, that exposes the meaning of Scripture uh, through books of the Bible. We believe it's, a, it's, it's, it's the best way that, that, that we can really understand and hear from God rather than just speak what we want to give. So I'm excited to be able to walk through the book of Colossians and be able to kind of walk through the introduction here today. So just by way of kind of background, as, as, as we enter into this book, anytime you're looking at a book, it's good just to kind of frame, okay, well, what is this that I'm looking at? What are we reading here? What, how do I understand, like, why this was written, who it was written to? And so, so we just want to kind of frame uh, kind of the big picture view of, of what this book was given for. And you likely know this, but Colossians is a, a letter, the lost art of, of letter writing in our, in our modern age. Some of, you, some of you kids might not even know what a letter actually is. So used to just text messaging, but uh, people actually used to write things down and then like send it. Back in the day, they had to actually send it with another person to be delivered. And so this is just a simple letter written by the Apostle Paul to this church. A church located in the city of Colossae. And this city was located in Asia Minor or modern-day Turkey, roughly 100 miles inland from the western coast in this river valley, the Lycus River Valley. I do have a picture here, I think. So here we go. This is Turkey, and you can see Colossae kind of highlighted there over on the left, side, left central side there, just to give us an idea and a sense of, of the actual historical place in which this letter was, was carried and delivered to people. And what's interesting about the city of Colossae and the church that was started there is that the Apostle Paul likely never actually visited this city. He likely did not actually meet any of these people that he's writing to, very few of them. So how did this church come to be? How, how did this church start in this city? Because Paul, we know, as we read through Acts, was, was going around and starting all these churches, preaching the gospel, seeing growth happen. Well, this, this awesome thing happened where likely during Paul's ministry in Ephesus, which is uh, more on the, on the coast of Turkey there, while he was there for about three years, Acts 9, chapter 19 tells us about his time there. He spent three years there ministering, preaching the gospel. While he was there, there was this man named Epaphras, who was from Colossae, somehow ended up in Ephesus. And while he was there, heard the message of Paul, the, the gospel of Jesus proclaimed, and he, he came to faith. He probably stayed there and was, was taught by Paul, was trained up. And then somehow he ended up back in Colossae. And even the surrounding cities there, as, as, as Epaphras shows up in the book of Colossians, he goes to uh, Laodicea and Hierapolis, which were two other close cities in this river valley. And it seems as he goes out as somewhat of a church planter himself to carry on the legacy that, that Paul invested in him. And so likely he went to Colossae, back to his hometown, preached the, this, this message of Jesus to his family, his friends. People came to faith, and this church was launched and started in the city of Colossae. And so, so Paul hears about what's going on in Colossae, and so he writes this letter to them. He hears from Epaphras later on, as Paul is likely in the city of Rome, he's likely in prison, and Epaphras ends up all the way over there and is sharing with him what's happening in this church, well, what's going on, what's, what, 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 how people are loving each other, what's, what's taking place in the church, and also some of the danger, dangerous philosophies and things that are, that are kind of creeping in and affecting the, the, the way these people understand the gospel and their, their spiritual walk. And so we get a picture of kind of why Paul writes. This, this kind of false teaching was making its way into the church, and it was in some, some way and some form kind of distorting the foundation of the gospel. It may not have been some concrete form of teaching, but it, it may have just been kind of the, the ph philosophical reasoning of the day. Uh, Rome, the, the, the Roman Empire had, had dispersed people all over the place. These, these major trade routes came fairly close to this area, so it created very much a melting pot in, in many of these cities with all these different worldviews and philosophies and religions being kind of brought together. A lot of new ideas. And some of these ideas and these philosophies and these cultural thoughts were, were creeping in. They were affecting the way that these young believers understood the gospel and how that was to be lived out in their lives. And so Paul writes to encourage these believers to remain faithful to Jesus Christ alone. He, he speaks into the dangers of syncretism, kind of taking worldly philosophies and other thoughts and kind of blending them with the gospel and with truth, kind of mixing religious thought altogether. 
So he, he speaks against the dangers of that, and he gives a warning against this kind of pluralistic, esoteric pursuit of higher knowledge, a higher spirituality. And he warns against that, and he calls this church to remain grounded in the gospel of Christ. If there was a theme text in the book, I would probably point to uh, chapter 2 and verse 6, where it says, it says, therefore, as you received Christ Jesus, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him and established in the faith just as you were taught. Saying, saying you don't have to go beyond this, cling to Christ, and He lifts up Christ and says, don't, you don't have to go on and find some other form of knowledge and experience, but remain true to Christ, dwell on Christ, live in the gospel of Jesus that, that you were first taught, and let that be your grounding and where you're rooted. And so we're going to unpack those themes as we walk through this book in the coming weeks. But this small book points both these young believers and even us today to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. And Paul seeks to exalt Christ as supreme and sufficient for everything. He's supreme, we'll see, in creation, in our salvation, and ultimately in our sanctification. But for now, we're going to just kind of focus in and and look at his introduction here in verses 1 through 14. So writing from Rome, probably around 60 to 61 AD, Paul starts off his letter with just a common greeting. And he, he writes both uh, from him, his perspective and uh, in, on behalf of his co-labor, Timothy. And he writes to these saints and faithful ones in Christ Jesus who were living in the city of Colossae. And what we'll see as we, as we unpack these verses this morning, we're going to see that witnessing the life-changing power of the gospel produces a delight in God and a desire for more of Him. Witnessing the life-changing power of the gospel will produce a delight in God and a desire for more of Him. And so we're going to see this in just two simple points here. We're going to see Paul's delight in gospel impact, and then we're going to look and see his desire for gospel transformation. So let's see in verses 1 to 8, first of all, his, his delight in gospel impact. Paul and Timothy, as he writes, he says, we thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He starts off by by thanking God. He doesn't write and and, and thank this church or thank these believers. He doesn't say, hey, I thank you guys that you guys are so awesome, that you're great. But Paul recognizes this is a work of God, something God has done, he has brought about. And so he thanks God for the work that has taken place within this church. And what does he thank God for? says that he thanks God since he heard of two things, their faith and their love. Their faith and their love, which spring from their hope that has been seen in these believers. See, Paul had heard about this thriving church from Epaphras. This guy had reported to Paul all about what was happening in the church, the exciting things that were happening in the city. So this is kind of like when, when we send a, a team over to the Czech Republic to see what's going on, to experience what's happening over there, and we come back and we, we share with you all, this is what's taking place. And, and as I was thinking about this, it's like, we need to do this more. We, we spoke with Freddie over in the Czech Republic this last week, and he was just telling us all the amazing things that are happening in the, in the network there in the Czech. In, in Metro Church, they just appointed three young pastors, and one of those guys they finally are able to free up in a part-time capacity to serve and, and minister within the church. A, a massive move for this, this young church in Metro that's taking place. They, they have this college ministry in the university there in their city, and they're just seeing it thrive. They're seeing all these college kids come to this thing and even being bridged to come and join and, and be, participate in their church and in their life groups. You're seeing other, other churches be interested in joining their network over in, over in uh, Slovakia or Poland or something. And so, so there's just all these awesome things that are happening over there. And, and, and this, is like, this is like when we share these things with us, do we, do we get excited? Do we see like God is at, is at work in this world? He's, he's doing something. Paul re- heard this word from Epaphras about what was happening in Colossae, and it brought an immediate reaction of thankfulness to God. He delighted to hear that the gospel was going forth, that it was impacting the world, even in places that he didn't actually minister and it just reveals kind of Paul's heart. Like, he wasn't just about kind of building his resume as a church planter. 
And he had a pretty good resume. He started a number of churches. But he, this wasn't the result of, of what he had done, but he is excited to hear that, that, that people are being saved and coming to faith. It's not just another church in their network, not just another uh, bunch of, of numbers added to their roster, but he's delighted that gospel has impacted the city and that faith has sprung up in these people. And ultimately, that they're learning to love one another. Isn't that just a, a great testimony for a church? What, he, what he's thankful for? He's thankful for this church that they, that they know how to love each other. What do you guys appreciate about this church, about, about any church you've been a part of? Is it, is it just because the, the music's awesome, because uh, there's really good coffee out front? Is it just because, you know, the, the, the sermons are, are great and relevant? Or is it, or is it that, you, that, that the people is characterized by, by a love for each other that is evident within the church? This is what Paul is thankful for, that their love is evident in each other. And he roots their faith and their love in something. There's this, this common Pauline triad, these three elements of faith, hope, and love that are mentioned multiple times in his writings. But here he, he, he unites them in a, in a unique way. Where he roots their faith and their love for each other as, being, as coming from and sourced in their hope of heaven. He says in verse 5 that, 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 that he's thankful for their love and their faith because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. So these people have a new hope. Their hearts are set on the hope of heaven and it's a difference in how they live. And Paul knows that, that when, when the hope of heaven takes root in, in a person's heart and in their life, that new hope will lead to new love. But how does that work? How should we think about the way that, that hope actually affects uh, the way that we love each other? How does that connect? Because there are some who might say, well, if you're so focused on heaven and, 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 and what you have there, that you'll actually probably be less effective now. You know, you, you, you're going to lose touch with the world. You're going to lose focus on doing anything valuable here if you're so focused on heaven. But Paul says, no, it's the other way around. And I was helped uh, this week by, uh, by John Piper, and he said this in reference to this relationship of, of hope and love. He said, one thing satisfies the heart whose treasure is in heaven, the deeds of heaven, and heaven is a world of love. Do you get what he said? He said, if our, if our hope is in heaven, then we're going to desire the things that characterize that place. And it is love that most characterizes heaven. So if our, if our, if our mind is set on heaven, then it is going to be a desire for heaven down in acts of love now. Piper goes on to say, he said, it is not the cords of heaven that bind the cords of love. It's not the cords of heaven that bind the cords of love. He said, no, what it is is the grip of money, the grip of possessions, the grip of power, the grip of family, the grip of advancement, the grip of vacation, of entertainment. It is those things that bind the cords of love towards others now. It is those things that often detract us from loving others. But it, the power to sever the cords that bind love is Christian hope. That's what Paul is saying in this passage. You see, if your hope isn't stored up in heaven, then what do you have? Where is your hope? All you have is now, right? All you have is this. So your hope is probably rooted in finding happiness and fulfillment and satisfaction now, here, in this life, through what you can get out of it. And what happens to the pursuits of love then? To loving other people. When we're seeking to establish our, our satisfaction and everything here and our hope is here, then, then people and other people easily become pawns in our pursuit of those things, right? Where we're looking to others to, to help us get what we want so we, we, we abuse others or we, or we manipulate others to get what we want out of life. Or we're just so focused on our own stuff that we don't have time for anybody else. Sure, I, I'd, I'd love to care for you. I'd love to help you. But hey, I got, I got, I got this other stuff that I'm pursuing. I think that's the, that's the tension that, that results here. And, and, and Paul is saying that you guys have found out that when you have a hope 
that is in heaven, that is secured for you, that, is, that, that you are waiting for, then that's going to reach back now and impact the way and free you up to actually love each other, to care for one another. And it's that reality that he's heard about in this church that he gives thanks to God for, that he delights in, how the gospel has, has, has reshaped their priorities. He also then tells us what this hope is rooted in. This hope of heaven is rooted ultimately in the gospel. He says, of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you as it also does throughout all the world. And so he says this gospel has come and it's produced local impact in you and it's also produced this global impact as it continues to go out to spread around the world to, to bear fruit and increase. I think of Romans chapter 1 where, where Paul says that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. He's, he's referencing the, the impacting power of the gospel. Not just in Colossae, but out throughout the whole world it's having this impact. And these themes of bearing fruit... And increasing are not new concepts, but they're found at the very beginning of Genesis chapter 1. What happens when when God creates man and woman in His image to rule over the earth? What does He tell them? He says, be fruitful and multiply. He's saying, fill the earth with God's image bearers. Take my image and display it and, 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 and spread it and fill the earth with my image. And we know that this beautiful purpose is distorted when sin enters the world and the curse brings destruction and death. But Paul here is delighting in the reality that in Christ a new creation is set forth. And the gospel that renews and works to restore the image of God in us is set forth and it is bearing fruit and it is multiplying And as the gospel spreads forth, it is actually the start of the reversal of this curse that was started back in Genesis. And it thrills the heart of Paul to see the gospel impact the Colossians and continue to spread throughout the world. He describes also its ongoing effect. How he says, he says says this gospel is, is bearing fruit and increasing. And he says, as it also does among you, since the day that you heard it. The gospel that came to them, that saved them, keeps bearing fruit and increasing in them as they, as they continue to hear the gospel, as they continue to receive the gospel. It continues to transform them. And it's, it, the gospel isn't that which just kind of kicks us through the door of salvation, but it's that which continues to work to change and transform our lives. And that is what we'll see Paul praying for. He also roots his thankfulness and his, and his, his delight in what God is doing ultimately in this legacy of a faithful witness. And I love how he highlights the, the work of Epaphras in verse 7. He says, just as you learned it, referring to the gospel, it was the gospel that they learned from Epaphras, who was a beloved fellow servant. He's a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf. Paul is thankful that Epaphras was so impacted by the gospel in his own life, that he had to go back and tell others about it. This is a clear New Testament example of disciples making disciples who make disciples. Paul invested in Epaphras during his time in Ephesus. He was so shaped and transformed by it that he went back and carried it on to somebody else and and told the people there in Colossae and shared it with them, and this church was started. Even now, Paul is saying that this gospel continues to bear fruit in their midst as new people are coming to faith. We have Paul going to Epaphras, to the Colossian church, and to new believers. This is the pattern of discipleship that we continue to hammer on day in, day out, week after week here at the crossing. We, we want to be disciples who make disciples who make disciples. It's what we want to see happen in our church and in our life groups. So the question is, how are you carrying this out? As you have been invested into, as you have been uh, taught the gospel and, and shared the message of Jesus and what it means to live it out in your life, who are you then sharing that with? Who can you seek to do intentional spiritual good towards with the goal that they will then be able to take that investment that you make into them and carry it on to someone else.
Do you have, do you have time to carve out for a journey group? To meet with, with, with other believers, other men and women, and, and, and just, just learn and understand how the gospel shapes our lives to, to grow in that. Do you get excited about seeing a young believer start to have the light bulb come on and understanding what, what the justifying power of the gospel does for us, for the, for the freedom that's offered when we're identified with Christ, where we don't have to, we don't have to pretend like we have it all together, we don't have to prove anything, but, but, but that, that our identity in Christ like, like changes us. You get excited when you realize that, when you see that in other people's lives, to where you, where you have a, a passion to pursue that with others, where you, you'll carve out time and make margin in your life to invest in others or to allow others to even invest in you. This is what Paul was so thankful for. He was excited about what was taking place within this young church. This was the, the original love, live legacy where they were, they were learning to love God, to, to live in gospel community and love each other, and to ultimately leave a legacy of followers of Jesus. This is what they were about. This is what Paul has a delight in, what he gets excited about. And it's because their hope is in heaven and not in what they're trying to accomplish in this life that frees them up to invest in that way. In verses 9 to 14, we move on and we see as he shifts from his, his delight in gospel impact, he, he goes on to, to show this desire for ongoing gospel transformation. He has a desire for gospel transformation. We see his desire first in his consistent prayer for this church. He begins in verse 9 saying, since the day we heard, we have not stopped praying for you. That's a, that's a bold statement. When Paul heard the news of this church and what was happening, he wasn't just like, okay, great, yeah, let's move on, let's create another, another church plan. But no, he stopped and he said, I got to add these people to my prayer list. I need to continue to consistently lift them up to pray for them. Have you guys ever had somebody share a request with you or, or share a need and you'll be like, hey, yeah, I'll, I'll pray for you. Yeah, I'll, I'll be praying for you. Kind of give that token thing. And then how, have you ever walked away and then actually never prayed for them? I've been there. And even, even as Paul shares this, it's, it's just this call where maybe we should not, not say that we'll pray, but let's stop and just pray for each other. To get in a pattern of, of regularly praying for things when, when we hear about it on the spot. Paul, as he heard about this church, he continues to pray for them, to lift them up. And we would do well to pay attention to the way that Paul prays. I'd commend to you a book by, by D.A. Carson called A Call to Spiritual Reformation, where he really unpacks the, the prayers of Paul. Just a great book that helps us to see the depth of the things that Paul prays for. We would do well to look at his prayers. One thing that, that we see is that, that, that Paul prays prospectively. He prays for things to happen and be rooted in their lives to, to, to re- result in this, in this future result of transformation. We oftentimes pray reactively, right? Something goes bad in our lives, and we, we got to pray for it, or, or we're trying to, you know, respond to something, and then, then we go to God when we're in trouble. We tend to pray reactively, and we should and rightfully do that, but, but Paul prays intentionally, prospectively for these specific things. So let's look at his prayer. What is the content of his prayer? What does he actually pray for, these people? He says that he asks that they would be filled with the knowledge of God's will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And Paul's use of this word knowledge is very intentional because at least an aspect of some of the false teaching and the philosophy that was influencing the the church was in regards to a, a higher knowledge. It was ultimately some kind of hidden, esoteric, kind of spiritual understanding or elitist spirituality. And uh, if you don't think that that's still present today, just, just Google spirituality, books on spirituality, and you will just get this plethora of, of all sorts of stuff out there trying to, trying to help people understand how, how they can connect spiritually, how they can be a better, better, better self and, and connect with these things. Like, like this is the this, this same thing that, that's just rampant in our culture in our day and age. We desire this, this experience of, of, of spiritual connection. 
kind of a higher knowledge, if we could just gain kind of this, this, this special knowledge, we'd, we, we'd, we'd, we'd have what we need. And this is kind of the, the thing that was, that, was, that was getting into the church that was throwing them off track. But Paul says that he desires, first and foremost, that these Christians have knowledge, but it's not the knowledge that they have been tempted to pursue. He says that he prays that they would be filled with the knowledge of God's will. And we may hear that and say, amen, yeah, I I pray for that. I I want God's will in my life, right? But what do you think of in terms of God's will? What first comes to mind when you think of God's will? When you think of God's will, do you first and foremost think of the trajectory of your life? Such such that uh, uh, maybe it's in regards to your career. Should Should I take this job or should I not? I need to know God's will for that. Or should, should I buy this house right now or not? Should I, should I date this person? Should I marry this person? Should I get a, get a dog or a cat? Actually, that one probably not because we all know it would never be God's will to get a cat. Um, <laughs> but but maybe, maybe you want God's will into where your kids should go to school. Should you homeschool or send them to the, the public school? Or, or, you know, when should you even have kids? Or, or you know, what, what vacation should we take? We want to know God's will in terms of our life and how it's playing out. We want God to show up and, and, and lead and direct that. And there's a sense in which that's, that's totally good and right. God wants us to, to seek Him in those things, to seek direction, to seek guidance in those things. But we, 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 we would, cannot ever limit God's will just to the way that our life is going to work out. Because the way that Scripture most often speaks of God's will is, is almost just synonymous with obeying what God has commanded following what God has laid out for us, what he, what he calls us to. And if we want to know God's will, we have to listen to how He has revealed Himself to us, what He has called us to. We can look very clearly at passages like 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, where it says, this is the will of God that you would be sanctified. So He says God's will is actually that you, that you, that you don't live in sexual immorality, but that you learn how to, how to control your body in holiness and honor as one who knows God. So, so foundationally, the will of God is, is that, we, that we were sanctified and set apart as holy people in how we live and in our sexual ethic. In 5.18, he says, this is God's will that, 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 you, that you're thankful. Like, like foundational will of God is that, that we are thankful people. And all throughout Scripture, God lays out for us. He, he hasn't hidden it from us. He, he lets us know what His will is. And we so often walk around, oh, I don't know what God wants me to do. I don't know what I should do. I don't know how to follow God. But do, do you actually want to know God's will? Or do you actually kind of feel like maybe if you don't know, maybe that gets you off the hook and kind of do what I want because I just didn't know. But, but God has re- revealed to us His commands, the things that, that He's given for us, not just as burdens, but ways in which we will find joy, the way He has designed us to live. And Paul's desire for this young church is not that they would just be killing it on Sunday in their worship, that they would, that they would, they would have great social gatherings, but he prays that they would understand God's will for them, how they should live. And I love how, how he even adds on, he says that they would understand God's will in, in wisdom and understanding. Speaking of, of just a, a full grasp of, of the way that God works, the way that God uh, is, His character, this understanding, and then this wisdom of knowing how to apply that. Because that, when we, have, we, we understand God's will and wisdom and understanding, when God works in our life in a way that we wouldn't choose, then we can, we can fall back on understanding and our knowledge and our wisdom that God sometimes works through difficult circumstances to actually bring about what he wants in our lives. So Paul's prayer focuses on this this knowledge and understanding in what God desires for them. And he prays this with a specific result in mind. What is the result that he's looking for? He says he prays that they they would come to live lives or to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord in verse 10. It says, so that you would walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him. 
He prays and longs for the day when their, their lives would match their confession. That they would, they would live out a life that, that reflects how they've been changed. Their confession of who Jesus is and their identity with Christ, that they would be changed and transformed to live a life that is worthy and reflecting of the person of Jesus. And then he gives these four characteristics of this, this picture of what it would look like when these things come about. When they begin to understand God's will and they live it out and they begin to walk a life worthy, these are the things that are, that are going to come about, these four things. And as we notice them, they're, they're very much things that are born of inward renewal, not just things that, they, that we can just like do by our own strength. He'll get to some very clear uh, commands later on in the book, but he always roots it in these, these foundational gospel truths that produce an inward change, an inward transformation. He says that ultimately their lives, as they are changed and transformed, will bear fruit in every good work. So what is the fruit of your life? As you look at your life, what you've left behind, like, like what is the fruit of your life? Do you have a desire that, that, that you would have fruit that's born out of the gospel that has changed us? He moves on and says that they would increase in their knowledge of God. They would, they would come to have a greater understanding of who God is. How have you grown in your understanding of God recently? How has your view of God grown, expanded just a couple weeks ago in our equip class, we, we, we talked about the attributes of God. We looked into the doctrine of the Trinity to, to seek to understand who is this God that we claim to worship. We look, we, we look at His attributes. We understand who He is. And it's not just so, so we have this kind of head knowledge about Him, but it's ultimately by thinking deeply about God, by understanding who He is, that we actually love Him more. He goes on and, and says that that they also will be strengthened with power, with His might, for resulting in endurance and patience. Do you need power? Do you feel weak? Do you feel like you're not sure if you can get through another day, another week? Do you feel like you're on the verge of just falling apart in your life, your marriage? parenting with your kids? In what area of, of your life do you need patience? Do you need endurance in a job that you, you just hate, but you just have to keep laboring in? In parenting and trying to raise kids, do you just feel like your patience is so thin? You need greater patience. You need patience with, with your roommates who you're just at conflict with, at odds with, who was great when you first moved in, but now you just are so annoyed at each other. Paul prays for these people that, that as they, they grow in the knowledge of God, as these things take root in their lives, that would result in this, this strengthening that God would empower them to do the things that He calls them to do. There is a strength offered to us outside of ourselves. We don't have to depend on ourselves. We don't have to hold it all together ourselves, but there's a strengthening from God's Spirit that is given to us. And it's this result of this ongoing transformation. And then lastly, this, this final characteristic which Paul lists is that of thankfulness. He says that they would give thanks to the Father who has qualified them to share in the inheritance of the saints. The last characteristic that, that will result, that will be evident in this life that is, that is transformed by the gospel is one of thankfulness. Very basic response. And as they know God's will, they will grow and they will culminate in this overflow of thankfulness and this recognition of what God has done for them. It will be this authentic thankfulness. And this thankfulness isn't, isn't, isn't just in themselves. It's not in what they have accomplished, what they have done, but it's, it's, it's thankfulness to God, recognizing what God has done. And so he roots their thankfulness in the gospel again. In these transforming realities of the gospel, he gives, first of all, these, these gospel benefits. He says that, that this, this, this Father that you should give thanks to has qualified you to share in this heavenly inheritance. The natural question is, well, why were we disqualified? What, what, what disqualified us from, from having this inheritance? And Paul, later in chapter 2, he speaks of the trespasses that we are dead in. He speaks of this, this, uh, this record of death that stood against us. 
In those ways, he's ultimately referring to sin, this sin that he's talking about. Not a very popular word or thought or concept in our, in our world and our culture, right? People oftentimes kind of think, yeah, you know, we all make mistakes, but, you know, overall, you know, we're okay, we're not too bad. We don't really want to think of, of, of sin in terms of, of, of defying a holy and righteous God. But the truth is that Paul says that we are dead in our sins, which means that we are separated from God because of our sinful rebellion against our Creator. And therefore, we are disqualified from standing in His presence. And Paul gives this beautiful reality of the gospel, this amazing truth, that God steps in and makes us qualified. And what's important to note in, in how God does this, it's, it's not that He changes the rules. God doesn't lower the standards but rather, he fulfills the requirements on our behalf. This, uh, this past Olympics, a couple, a couple months ago, in uh, Pyeongchang, there was, uh, there was this, this, this woman who competed in uh, skiing freestyle. It was actually the half pipe. I don't know if any of you guys saw this, but uh, there's this girl was entered in, and after she made her first run down the half pipe, it was very, very obvious to everybody that she had no business being in that competition. You see, when you watch the women's half pipe, these are incredible athletes. They've been doing this for a long time. They know what they're doing. They're doing things that, that, that I didn't even think were physically possible. They, they jump into this half pipe. They, they fly up the walls. They fly, you know, 20 feet or so out of it. They spin around four, four times or so, 720s, 1080s on the guys. There's this amazing feat of acrobatics, and they land in this basically sheet of ice, this bowl of ice, and make it down. And so all these, these competitors are, are, are making these amazing runs. Some of them are falling. And then this, this gal gets up, and, and she heads down the hill, enters into the half pipe, and just, just goes up the side down the side, up the side, down the side, just, just all the way down. If you haven't seen it, you should, you should look it up. It's, it's, it's amazing. And as she makes it down, she doesn't fall, but everybody's like, what just happened? Like, like how did she get into this competition? Clearly, a, a beginner skier entered into this Olympic competition. So how did she get in? Well, this girl, who's actually an American, works in Silicon Valley, I think. She, uh, her, her grandparents are uh, Hungarian, and so she actually competed for the nation of Hungary. And uh, this, this gal was able to kind of enter into a, a number of technically world-qualifying events. And just by virtue of not falling down when she made her runs, she was able to get better technical scores than, than other skiers who were, who were far greater than her. And she did enough of these throughout the world. She figured out, you know, where she could go and where she could compete, where, the, where there was low attendance, so she kind of had a better, better chance of getting in. And because of the limitation on the number of, any, of skiers any one country can send, that ultimately she, her number was slotted within the, the qualifying batch of acceptance uh, competitors into this skiing competition. And so, so she found this loophole... She played the system and made herself an Olympic athlete, which, got to give her props for that, right? I mean, it's pretty cool. She at least gets to put that on her resume. But, uh, but, but, but she, 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 she found this way in. The standards were, were not real high, we realized afterwards, of what it takes to become an Olympic woman's halfpipe skier. And isn't that what so many people in our day and age around us are hoping for? are planning on, are betting on, is some kind of loophole so that they can sneak in, that God will let them in. But God doesn't just lower the standard. God doesn't set this low bar where it's like, oh yeah, I know you're, you're, you're a pretty evil person. I know you hate people. I know you're really selfish. I know, I know all these things about you that are, that are inside of you. But you know what? We'll, we'll just kind of wipe that away. It's really not that big of a deal. We'll kind of, you know, you did some of these other good things, so that's good. Or, you know, uh, God, I just didn't really understand everything. You know, things were kind of confusing. So can I kind of get a, get a pass on this whole heaven thing? 
We're not going to find any loopholes. We're not going not to you know, be able to meet some low standard, low bar. Because the bar that is set for us is, is determined by God's own character. It's determined by His absolute holiness. And it's His holiness that He is compelled to uphold and to protect. And it's, it's not because of what we have done or any standard that we will ever meet, but it's because God, on our behalf, meets the requirements for us. And it's because of Him and Him alone and His acting for us in our place that we can be declared, as Paul says, qualified, competent, okay to enter in to God's presence and experience His glory. So he gives these gospel benefits of this, of this, this qualification that's given to us. He describes also this gospel freedom. He says, you have been delivered from the domain of darkness. The, the grip of sin that held us, that controlled us, that we were lost in, has been broken. We sang earlier, and one line says that, that, that he breaks the power of canceled sin. So yes, He pays for our sin. He cancels the record of debt that stood against us. But He also breaks the power of that sin that has been paid for. So we don't have to just be lost in it. If you feel lost in sin, like you can never get out. God has provided a way through the gospel to free us from the bonds and grips of sin. He goes on and also describes this new gospel identity. that We we have not just been freed from the dominion of sin... And, and sent to kind of fend for ourselves, but he says that he has transferred us into the kingdom of his son. We've been made kingdom citizens, and, and therefore we have a new identity, a new residence. We have the full benefits of belonging to the kingdom of God. And lastly, he, he describes this gospel power, where he says that he redeemed us. This language that, that ultimately is identified to the, the purchasing of a slave out of slavery, he has bought us back from our, from our bondage to sin, has set us free. He, he clarifies ultimately this is the forgiveness of sin, the remission, the canceling of the sin that stood against us on our account. This is the gospel. This is what, what God has done for us. And it's nothing that we have done, so therefore we cannot think that we deserve it. We can't be proud of what, we, what, what we've done just to, to find it or discover it, but it has been given to us. And for that reason, Paul says you should result in just thankfulness, an abundance of thanksgiving, of recognition of what we've been given. I spent so much time trying to teach my kids to be thankful when they're, you know, they're given something from somebody. It's like, hey, what do you say? And, you know, they'll oftentimes begrudgingly kind of walk up and mumble, and thank you, you know, but and I'm like, no, say it like you mean it, and, and, and recognize it. And so then the conversation with them is all about like, hey, why aren't you thankful? Did, did, did you deserve that? Like, were you entitled to, to get that gift? No, 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 they gave it to me. They sacrificed for it. They, they gave it to us. And, and just trying to see that this motivation for thankfulness, just not because I am their father and tell them to be thankful, but because they recognize what they've been given. And Paul says when we recognize the gospel that has changed us, has qualified us, it will reshape our attitude and our mind. And we, we, it will culminate in just this abundance of thanksgiving for what God has done. So just some final reflections. What do you delight in? What do you regularly thank God for, and what shapes your prayer life? The introduction to this letter challenges us to consider both what we delight in and what we desire, both in our lives and in others. What do you pray over your kids? What's your greatest desire for your children? That they would be able to graduate ultimately from high school, stay off drugs, get into college, make a life for themselves? What do you pray for your kids? What do you pray over them? You pray they would know God's will, that they would be transformed by the gospel. Do you rejoice in the spread and impact of the gospel? When you see someone baptized here, does that just, does that just thrill your soul? Does your hope in heaven shape 
the way that you love others? Where is your, where is your hope rooted? Where is it grounded? Is it so set in heaven that you want heaven to be seen here, that you want God's kingdom realities to take place and be worked out here? Does your hope in heaven free you to actually love others, to lay down your lives for others in your life group, to sacrifice some of your entertainment time, to go and, and read the Bible with someone? Do you desire just ongoing transformation in your life and others? Does the gospel shape our identity that we're regularly seeing how it speaks into our lives? And the things that Paul prays for in this church, as I studied over these things this week, I was just, I was just so convicted about even what I desire for this church for us. Oftentimes it's, you know, hey, how many people do we have on Sunday? You know, are people missing? Is it good? Um, you know, how are life groups going? Are things, are things going smooth? Are they going well? But I was just struck this week to be like, these are the things that I want to happen in the crossing. I want us to be filled with the knowledge of God's will, that we desire what God desires for us, that our lives are so transformed that we, that we love each other, not out of obligation, but out of understanding how much we've been given, that we grow in our knowledge of God, that we have a big view of God, that we also have a, a realistic view of our sin. Because when we have a, an, a true understanding of the depths of our sin and a big view of God and His holiness, it makes the cross of Christ larger and larger before us. And ultimately, are we, are we a, a church that just exhibits thankfulness? That we're thankful for what God has done in us. That it shapes us through and through. So that is my desire it's going to be my ongoing prayer for us. So let me pray these things over us now as we close. God, we do thank you. We look to you this morning, recognizing that anything we have is all of you. It is a gift from you. Nothing that we have done. It is you who qualifies us, and not by lowering the standard for us, but by fulfilling it in our behalf. So I pray this morning that we would be a church, a people who grows in our, in our knowledge of your will. Give us wisdom, give us understanding in it. Help us to be a church that bears fruit, that increases in our knowledge of God, that is thankful for everything that we've been given. And ultimately, God, just strengthen us through your Spirit for everything that you call us to in this life. And let us look to you. And let us love you more because of what you have done for us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.